I'll start. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning once again, everyone. Let me just adjust this for my particular leg length. It's nice to see everyone. It's great to be here, especially on this drizzly, rainy day. It's nice to see so many people coming out um, and getting out of the rain, finding somewhere nice and warm to come and learn also from God's Word. So um, why don't we just have a moment's prayer and then we'll get into our passage today. It's quite a long passage, so we do have quite a bit we've got to work through. So let's just pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love for us that is new every morning, your mercies, your grace that are refreshed every morning, and we thank you for that. And Lord, we thank you for the time that we're going to be able to spend today in your word, learning from what your disciple John has to teach us about what it means to live your way. And I pray that you would be with us, you would open our hearts to receive, that the words that we have just heard read the words that we're going to think about would not just be words on a page, but they would be alive, that they would come and live deeply within our hearts and our souls and in our minds, that they would change us and that we would be able to become more and more like your son each passing day. Father, help us to do these things for his sake and for your glory. Amen. Well, it's interesting the way that Dan started out his little kid's spot today, because I also have a spot the difference for you. Can you tell me which of these two $50 notes is a fake? One of them is a fake, and you may not be able to see them very clearly from where you're sitting, because the difference between them is actually very, very small, and you kind of have to get up close to be able to see it. I'll show you which one it is. It's actually the bottom one. And there's a very, very faint line running down the center of that note where it's been creased and crinkled and it's deformed a little bit. And that's how we know that that's the fake one because the material that fake money is made from is different to the material of real money and it creases and crinkles in, in different ways and deforms in different ways. But it's not easy to see. And spotting counterfeit money if you run your own business is actually a fairly important thing to do because the Reserve Bank of Australia estimates that if you run a business and you accept one fake $100 note, it'll actually take you over $2,000 worth of sales to recoup that loss. So receiving fake money is going to cost you an inordinate amount of work to recover what you've lost. So it's important if you run a business that you are able to do that. But most people can't. 
I worked checkouts at Woolies for four years while I was at, at Union. This, is, this was back in the early 2000s, and there was a lot of cash we were handling in those days. And I worked with cash all the time working the checkouts. I can't tell you what's fake money and what's real. Just being around it is not enough. You can't always tell. And as serious as it can be for your business if you accept fake money, the consequences for your eternal salvation if you accept a fake Jesus or a fake Christianity are significantly worse, as Dan already pointed out to us. And what John's going to give us in this second half of chapter 2 are some tests that we can use to see if our faith is actually genuine or if our faith is fake. And that's what I've used as my title for today, that question that I want you to think about. Is your faith fake? And the big idea that I want us to walk away with today is the idea there, you can see my subheading, that only real faith can give you real assurance. Now, John's going to give us three ways of spotting fake faith. He's going to point out to us that those whose faith is fake, they depart, they deny, and they deceive. But if your faith is real, then that real faith will assure you of the genuineness of your salvation. So let me ask you this question as we start out, to have it in your mind, to think about as we go along. Are you sure that your faith is real? Is it possible that you have a fake faith, like you might have a fake $50 note in your wallet? Is it possible your faith is fake? Is it possible that you've had the wool pulled over your eyes and been deceived? Or maybe you've deceived yourself and pulled the wool over your own eyes or over the, the eyes of your family and you've been the one deceiving them. Is that a possibility? That's what I want you to think about as we start out. John wants us to make sure that we have the real Jesus because if we don't have the real Jesus, then we can't have real fellowship with God and we can't have real salvation. And ultimately, John's whole point in writing his letter can be found really at the end in chapter 5, verse 13, where John says this, believe in the Son of God and know you have eternal life. That's the end goal John has in writing his letter. And he's going to give us some tests to help us achieve that goal today. Because we can know, we can have confidence in our eternal salvation and in our relationship with God. And the tests that John gives us will help us to do that. So, let's get into our text and let's look first at the way in which fake faith departs. So, if you've got your Bibles open still, let's have a look in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, I know there's a lot of people in the church who love to dive deep into the end times and try to figure out all the details. And maybe when we read and heard the word Antichrist and end times, we got excited it was going to be one of those kind of sermons. It's not going to be one of those kind of sermons. Sorry to disappoint you if that's what you were looking for. We're not going in that direction today, all right? Suffice it to say that the end times began with Jesus and they will end when Jesus returns in judgment. That's why John says it's the last hour, right? He understood that the church age, this is the last age before the end of history when Jesus returns. And if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you'll find the author says the same thing. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son. So we've been in these last days or the last hour, as John puts it, since the time of Jesus. And we're going to be in them until he returns again. And at the end of this age, we will have the Antichrist that many of us have heard about. But before that one arrives, there are many who could be called Antichrists. Note the plural that John uses there. It's not just one, it's many. And these are people who lead people away from Christ, just as the Antichrist will do on that day. And John tells us it's the presence of these antichrists that lets us know that we are in the last hour. And we don't know much about who these antichrists were that John's referring to, but at some point they must have been a part of the church and they must have left the church because let's read verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, 
they would have continued with us. But they went out so it might become plain that they all are not of us. So John's reminding his congregation that these people leaving, that's a sign that they actually are not and never were genuine Christians. Their faith was fake. And this is evidenced by the fact that they've departed. And they haven't just moved churches because they've got a job in a different city. That's not what John means. They've walked away from church. They've walked away from Jesus, right? That's the kind of scenario that John has in mind. And because of their departure from Christ, he says that shows they were never really one of us. Have a look again at the end of verse 19. They went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So we don't know exactly what caused them to depart, but their departure shows us that they were never actually Christ's. Now, there are a lot of places in the Bible that talk about how one of the signs of true Christianity is perseverance, is the ability to continue in your Christian walk. I'll just give you two examples for the sake of time. One from Matthew, Jesus, when he's speaking about the persecution that Christians will face, says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And also the author of Hebrews For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. These antichrists John talks about, they failed this test of perseverance. And their departure should actually make all of us who claim to be Christians sit up and take notice. These fake Christians, they most likely professed faith in Christ at some point. I mean, they were a part of the church, right? So it would be logical to conclude that they were saying the right words. But their profession of faith apparently did not indicate a possession of faith. They were just words that these people had spoken. So let me ask you the question I asked you again at the start. Is your faith fake? Is your faith just a profession? It's just words that you've said at some point. Or do you really possess faith in Christ? How can we be sure? How can we be sure that our profession of faith is genuine? How can we make sure that ours is not a fake faith that will one day lead us to depart from the things of God? Well, John's actually given us one way of knowing already. And I think this is part of the passage you had preached last week. But if you just go back in your Bibles to the start of chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. So the fruit of obedience in our lives, that's an indication that our faith is genuine. And I know we all struggle with obedience, and we will until we make it to heaven. But let me ask you about your attitude towards obedience. Is obedience something you actually desire? How does your heart respond when you hear John say we must keep his commandments? Because really, as Christians, we should delight in following God's ways. Following what God wants should be a joy to us. So if pleasing God with your actions is something that you desire, something you truly want to do, that's a good sign that your faith is genuine. And as you continue to walk with God day by day by day in the obedience that He calls us to, the Holy Spirit strengthens us and helps us to do that, and He changes us. And more and more we can do what verse 6 says, which is we can abide in Him. We can live and remain in Christ and who He is. But a fake faith will ultimately lead to the departure away from the things of God. But a fake faith also will lead you to deny the truth about who God is. And that's where John turns next in his discussion. Fake faith will lead you to deny. Let's read verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. And before I go too much further into what John's talking about there, I need to address what he means by the phrase, the anointing of the Holy One. That's in verse 20. 
Now, some of us, and I know this is true of me, have come from church backgrounds where that, that word anointing has a very particular kind of meaning. It's, it's often associated with someone's, um, maybe an individual's claim to be anointed by God for some specific ministry, like I've got a healing anointing, or maybe I've got an anointing that will help me figure out what job I should have, who I should marry, those kinds of things, or at a very individual level sort of thing. But that's not what John means here. And I'm pretty certain that it's definitely not what John means here. And the reason I can be certain of that is because of his audience. He's actually writing to the entire church. He's not writing to just an individual. So whatever the anointing is, he says they have, it's something everybody in the church has. It's something they have just because they are Christians. So what is it? Well, some commentators think he's talking about their initial reception of the gospel, how as a group they've been anointed or covered by the truth of the gospel, and that's, that's one way of understanding it. Other commentators think it's a reference to what happens when we place our faith in the one true and living God and how the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And so in that sense, we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside each and every individual Christian. Now, these are both valid options for understanding what John means. And whichever of those two is the correct interpretation, one thing is very clear, and that's the contrast John's going to make between those with the anointing and those without the anointing. So even if we can't figure out exactly what the anointing is, I don't think that's actually John's point. I think the contrast is what he wants us to see. So think about these antichrists. These are the ones who do not know the truth. These are ones who lie. He's going to tell us that in verse 22 when we get there. But the ones to whom John's writing, what does he say about them? He says they know the truth. So the outcome of the anointing they have, whatever that might be, is that they know the truth about who Jesus is. They know that He's the Christ. They've come to know the true Jesus. And He's going to come back to this idea in verse 27. And this isn't just a knowledge about the truth of Jesus. You know, an atheist could go and take a theology exam and score 100%. It's not just knowledge about who Jesus is. It's knowing Jesus. It's experiencing Jesus. It's having a relationship with the one who himself is truth personified. And without that anointing from the Holy Spirit, you can't actually know the truth. You can understand it in a mental way, but you can't experience it. You can't know who Jesus is. And without that, we would just keep walking in error like non-Christians do, because they don't have the ability to properly understand the truth about who God is. And that's what those who have departed from the church have done. They've continued walking in error without the anointing of the Holy Spirit to take the truths about Christ and apply them to their lives. And that means those who deny the truths about who Christ is, they are by definition anti-Christ, right? That makes perfect sense. And they are liars. We see that in verse 22. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So note again the contrast. Christians are ones who know the truth. These are the others who are liars who deny. That's the contrast that the anointing makes. And if you see the end of verse 22, this is really important. Denying Christ isn't just denying Jesus who's the Son. It's also denying God the Father. And he emphasizes this again in verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So the only access to God the Father is through confessing belief and trust in God the Son, Jesus Christ. And that's a really unpopular claim to make these days. In fact, it's a claim that most people reject, at least in my experience, and sadly, even a lot of those who say they're Christians do not accept the exclusivity of Christ. I think this is actually a far more popular belief these days. All religions are basically worshipping the same God, we're all basically moving in the same direction, we're just using different names. Let's all just get along, let's all just tolerate each other. Right? This is what we call religious pluralism, okay? And it's the idea that there isn't just one way to God, there's a plurality of ways, okay? The GPS yesterday showed us multiple ways of getting out of Sydney, there's a plurality of ways to achieve your goal. It's the same idea in the religious pluralist system. I've heard a lot of people say, 
Christians, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, we're all worshipping the same God and therefore we're all going to heaven. Anyone else heard people say that? It's a fairly common claim. But John's trying to teach us here, no, 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 that's not correct. If you reject the truth about who Jesus is, you've actually rejected God Himself. And Jesus said the same thing about Himself a lot of different times. Again, I'll just give you two examples from John's Gospel. John 10, Jesus said again, I truly tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, and the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John 14, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus is clearly not a pluralist. Jesus does not believe there's multiple ways to heaven. He believes he's the one way. Now, there are a lot of groups who will kind of agree with that, in a sense, and they'll lay hold of Jesus and say, yeah, yeah, we've got Jesus, right? We're doing it right. We're following the right path. They'll include him in their system of how you get to heaven. We've got to ask the question, all right, well, who is the Jesus that you've got? Who's the Jesus you've claimed and that you proclaim to others? Is it the Jesus of the Bible? I should say, is he the Jesus of the Bible? Can he really save you? Can he be your gate into heaven? Well, I'll take a little sidetrack here and briefly look at what three pretty common religions who hold on to Jesus, what they actually teach about who Jesus is, just so we're clear on the differences. We'll start with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Most of us have probably had them come to our door at some point, so we've got a vague maybe idea of who they are and what they believe. They talk about Jesus in many of the same ways we do. They'll say He's the Messiah, He's the Son of God, you have to trust in Him for eternal life. They'll use all that same kind of vocab. But do they have the same Jesus? That's the question. It's kind of like our two $50 notes or like Dan's illustration. You've got to look really closely to see the differences. So I did some research on jw.org, which is their official website. So this is their actual teaching from their church. This isn't just something that a non-Jehovah's Witness is making up. And I want to show you a couple of things they say. And as you look at them, see if you can spot the difference between what they say about Jesus and what you know your Bible says about Jesus. Okay, let's see how they go. Firstly, according to Jehovah's Witness theology, Jesus was the first thing God made. He's God's first creation. And that makes Jesus just a God created by the Almighty God. He's a lesser being than God because He was made by God. That's part of their system. And one of the reasons they say this is because, and this is really interesting that you're doing a, a hermeneutics course. Are you running that, Dan? Hermeneutics, very good course you should turn up at because you'll see this kind of thing. The way that they read the Bible, they use some pretty shonky historical scholarship to translate John 1.1 in a way that's different to what's in your Bible. So the top there is our Bible. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. They claim it should say the Word was a God. That's part of their difference in who they see and how they see who Jesus is. Now, that's not the Jesus we meet in the pages of our Scripture, a created being, one who is just a God and not the God. And it gets even more difficult when you think about what God says about Himself in Isaiah 43.10, no God was formed before me and there will be none after me. Well, how can He be a God if God's already said, I'm not going to make any gods? That doesn't make sense, all right? And Jesus Himself claimed to be God. You see this, John 8, 58, truly I tell you before Abraham was, I am. And that phrase, I am, if you know the story of Moses in the Exodus, that's how God revealed Himself to Moses in the burning bush. It's a direct claim by Jesus to be God. And Jesus' audience knew this because how did they respond? They picked up stones to try and kill Him for blasphemy. They knew that by saying that, He was claiming to be God. So the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's a fake. It's a counterfeit Jesus. And if you don't have the real Jesus, you can't have real fellowship with the Father. All right, what about the Mormons? Or as they prefer to be called these days, the LDS Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You probably maybe had them come to your door as well. Always wearing the white shirt with the black name tag, um, very iconic and easy to see. What do they teach us about Jesus? 
Unfortunately, their website doesn't really have a whole lot about their beliefs on it. So it's not as easy to dig out the deeper, more specific teachings of the Mormon church. So I've got an article that I've read, and I can send it to Pastor Rob if he wants to read it, where somebody's actually got bought a copy of their book, LDS, um, LDS Beliefs, a doctrinal reference published by their church. So it's their official kind of systematic theology that lays out everything they believe. Um, and this guy goes through it and pulls out some of the quotes, and I'll show you just one, um, because I think it'll make the point that we need to make. There's a lot of other interesting things in there, but this will be enough. This one is about the nature of God, okay? Um, and it's about the Trinity. And they say in this book, the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. And these three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are separate and distinct personages and beings. So not only is God the Father a physical being, He's a separate being from God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. So you actually have three gods there. Because they're three separate and distinct personages and beings. Now they will say, oh yeah, but we worship them as one collective. So they'll say we still worship one God. We go, okay, well, who's God? Well, all three of them are God. So you're worshiping three gods. And they don't really like to phrase it that way. But that is what that statement shows us about their beliefs. So again, we can see they do not have the same Jesus. And in fact, if you dig deeper into LDS theology, what you find out is that every god gets their own planet and populates it with their own spirit babies. And so even the god who runs our planet isn't the only god in existence. He's just our god because he made us. So other planets and other parts of the universe will have their own gods with their own populations, Right? That's why marriage is eternal in Mormon theology, because you have to go and populate your own spirit planet sometime with your wife that you have for all of eternity. Just file that thought away for later. All right. Okay. What about Islam? Okay. You don't tend to get too many Muslims come knocking on your door, which is unfortunate because it'd be a great witnessing opportunity, but they don't tend to do that. But they do believe in Jesus and they do love Jesus. And you'll hear them talk about that if you've ever had a conversation with a Muslim about Jesus. 34 times in the Quran, which is the Muslim holy book, if you don't know that, um, there are verses that talk about Jesus. And these verses teach us that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that He is the Messiah, that He has gone physically to heaven, and He is going to come back one day to judge the earth. And that all sounds kind of legit, right? The Quran even teaches that Muslims and Christians are worshipping the same God. We just got some details about Jesus wrong. Okay, so there's a lot of overlap there in the things that they say. But here's where it gets tricky. They actually deny that Jesus is God. Muslims believe that Jesus is just a normal human being like you and me. Right now, he's a prophet like Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah. So he's kind of like a holy guy, but he's just a regular, ordinary human being that God chose to make into a prophet. So they have a lot of respect for Jesus, like the T-shirt show, but just Jesus the man not Jesus the God, all right? They also teach that worshipping Jesus is an unforgivable sin. They call it shirk, which is an Arabic word. And anyone who worships Jesus is going straight to hell when they die. Okay, so that's another difference. And they deny that Jesus was ever actually crucified and therefore he was never raised from the dead because he never died. So, those are the verse references to the Quran, if you want to go and read those verses, those chapters and verses for yourself. Um, but there's a lot of other things we could look at there. So, despite their claim to worship the same God as us, they're denying the Jesus of the Bible. And John has said, if you deny the Jesus of the Bible, you've also denied the Father. So, you can't just say, well, we're still worshipping the same God, we're just getting Jesus a little bit different. No, no, no. You get Jesus wrong, you also lose the Father. That's John's point. And I think it really comes down to this simple statement. Believe what the Bible says about Jesus, or you're not worshipping the true God. There's no other way to put it. Go back to verse 22 in your Bible. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, if you know Mormons or Muslims or Jehovah's Witnesses, a lot of them are really nice people. They do lots of good deeds. They've got lots of good fruit in their lives. But if the object of their faith, and if the object of our faith, is not the real God of the Bible seen through the real Jesus of the Bible, then we actually don't have anything. 
all the good deeds in the world are not going to be enough when we stand before God on Judgment Day. We need more than that. So in verses 22 and 23, John's identified the liars who were amongst them, these antichrists. They've denied that Jesus is the Christ, is the Lord, is the Messiah. But in verse 24, he transitions from talking about those ones who have departed and left the church to talking about those who are still in the church, those to whom he's writing this letter. And he wants them to be sure of something that we should also check about ourselves. Are we deceived about Christ? Do we really believe all that the Scripture teaches about who Jesus is? Because we have to understand that fake faith will deceive us into false beliefs. And we must ensure that we're not deceived into believing a false, fake, counterfeit Christ. So let's read verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise He made to us eternal life. So John's reminding them that in contrast to those who have departed or have denied the truths about Christ, they are to ensure that they hold fast onto what they've been taught from the beginning, which is exactly what he says to them at the start of the letter in chapter 1, if you've read from the beginning. You'll, you'll hear that phrase. He says it repeatedly. And he reminds them of this importance by using this little word, if. And we've got to pay attention to these small words when we read our Bibles. They help us to understand really clearly what's going on. If they hold to the original teachings of Christ and His apostles, then they will remain connected to both the Son and the Father, and they will have the promised eternal life. But if they abandon those teachings, if they follow in the way of those with a fake faith, they will depart and they will deny who Christ is. See this verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So he's warning them, don't follow those fake Christians. They're trying to lead you astray. Their fake faith will deceive you about who Jesus is. And Jesus was also very clear about this. He said this in lots of different places. Mark 13 is one good example. He said, false teachers, they're going to be a common feature of these end times. And you need to be aware of them and you need to guard yourself against them. Look how many times, just in these few verses, he references those who deceive, those who are false, those who are trying to lead people away from who Jesus is. So we have to always be on our guard against those whose message about Christ is deceptive. Now, John tells us in verse 27 how we can do that, but it is a bit tricky to understand what he says, so it'll take us a minute to understand. Let's look at verse 27. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. So we have to ask the obvious question, well, what does John mean when he says you have no need that anyone should teach you? Isn't the whole letter that John's writing an example of him teaching them things? I mean, aren't all the letters of the apostles them teaching us things? So what is it that John means? Well, John can't mean you don't ever need to have a human teacher. Right, I mean, that's obviously going to contradict the other parts of Scripture that we can think of. I'll give you one example. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that when God was giving spiritual gifts to people, He gave some to be appointed as teachers. So the gift of teaching is one of the spiritual gifts God gives to people. So John can't mean that. And if you read the qualifications for elders in um, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, the ability to teach is one of the things that qualifies someone to be an elder in the church. So John can't mean that we don't need any human teachers. There's got to be something else going on here. What I think is going on here is actually something that he referenced back in chapter 1. And I'll just try and briefly give you a summary of that because we don't have time to go into it in detail. There's, there's, a, there's a reference that John makes in chapter 1 to a group that um, we call the Gnostics. Now, I don't know how many of you have even heard of that term before, but the Gnostics are a group around at the time of John and they were a problem for the first couple of hundred years of the Christian church that believe that the physical world is evil and only the spiritual world is good. And because of that, they denied that God could take on human flesh in the person of Jesus, because that would be the good God taking on evil humanity, evil physical world, and they said that can't happen. So they actually denied that Jesus had a real physical body. So 
one of the things that they were doing is they were claiming that we've got this special secret knowledge from God about the real truth of who Jesus is, and that's what we're going to teach you about. So I think what John's talking about here is actually a reference to those groups. He talks about this idea more in chapter 1, but I think he's coming back to it again here, that you've got these groups who are claiming to give you secret knowledge about Jesus. But what John's already said back in chapter 1, verse 1, is that the church is to hold on to what they were taught from the beginning. That's the same thing he said in verse 24 of our section today. So here's what I think John means with this, you don't need anyone to teach you. What you don't need is these false teachers claiming to have secret, special knowledge of God that they only received by some kind of special anointing, when what you have is what the disciples gave you from the beginning. He says, don't worry about those teachers, you don't need them. You have what you need in what you've been given, the authentic gospel preached from day one. So you don't need these secret teachers to teach you special things. I think that's what he means. And Christians, since we have the Holy Spirit, which is the anointing that he's already referenced many times, we, we know the truth about Christ. And the Holy Spirit and the authentic teachings of Christ and the apostles, which is for us the complete Bible, that's enough to teach you what you need to know about who God is. We don't need special teachers with special secret knowledge to fill in the blanks. As a Christian, you've got the Holy Spirit. He illuminates the Bible to you so you can understand it properly. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. He helps us discern truth from error as we read the Scriptures. And I think that's what John is referencing. If you think about those religions I mentioned before, they've all got founders who claimed to speak for God, to hear from God outside of what the Bible says. Joseph Smith, who started the Mormon church, Muhammad, who started the religion of Islam. John says, look, you guys as a church, you don't need new teachers and you don't need new teachings. Stick to what you were given. You have what you need and it is enough for you. Look at the end of verse 27 again. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. So the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that is a, a sign that our faith is genuine, that it's not a counterfeit. And so John's encouraging his people there, and we draw the same encouragement now 2,000 years later, to rely on Him and what He teaches through His Word. We're not to chase after new and exciting teachings that blow through the church every generation. If you've been around the church as long as I have, and some of you have and longer, you know what I mean. There's always new ideas coming through that are attempting to draw people away. John says, no, stick to what God says in the Bible. The Apostle Paul wrote this to his disciple Timothy. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be what? complete, equipped for every good work. Peter says the same thing. His divine power has given us everything required for life of Godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and power. Peter and Paul understood that what we need as servants of God is the Scripture that God has ordained and preserved for us over the centuries. It's the only trustworthy source of knowledge about God that we have. It will make us complete and equipped for every good work that God wants from us. So we need to be careful about people who say the Bible is not that important, who try to diminish the importance of the Bible. These three groups I mentioned earlier, the Mormons, the Muslims, the J-dubs, they all speak highly of the Bible. Yeah, yeah, the Bible is really important, but they add to it. You know, the, the Muslims have the Quran, the Mormons have three extra books, actually, the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, and Doctrines and Covenants. Jehovah's Witness have the Watchtower Society that tells them what the Bible means and how they must interpret it. So you get, in all three cases, speaking highly of the Bible, but in practice, the Bible takes a back seat and something else takes over in how they understand who God is. And there's actually some parts of the Christian church who are effectively doing the same thing, who emphasise the subjective aspects of Christianity and the experiences we can have over and above the sure and steady Word of God. There's a movement in the church called the New Apostolic Reformation. I don't know how many of you have heard of that phrase, but basically what it means is there's churches who teach that just like there were apostles in Jesus' day, there are once again apostles, men and women who have the authority to speak for God and to teach us exactly what God wants, just like Paul did and James did and John did and the other apostles back in Jesus' day. 
And so inevitably what happens is if you believe that, that there are these modern-day apostles getting fresh revelation from God, what's going to happen is the fresh revelation is going to be what you're, what you're questing after. And the established teachings of the Bible are going to take a back seat. That's just how it goes. One of the big churches in this movement is Bethel Church in California. Some of you may have heard of them. Their lead pastor is a guy named Bill Johnson. He criticizes people who, re- who rely too much on the Bible. It's kind of an odd thing for a Christian pastor to do. But he says, and he says this in the context of the Trinity, he says, you know what, guys? It's not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How can we be like the church in the Bible if we rely on a book that they didn't even have? So he's critical of those of us who put too much emphasis on what the Bible says. He thinks that by doing that, we're actually downplaying the importance of the Holy Spirit. That's what his his statement is supposed to indicate. But that's not true. John's telling us we need the Holy Spirit to help us understand the Bible. We need the Holy Spirit to apply to our lives what the Bible teaches us. John's repeatedly referring to this anointing in this section. But he's also repeatedly referring to the established teachings of the church. You haven't seen this because we haven't done these chapters, but in the previous one and a half chapters, more than these times, this is just a sample, he's reminding them, go back to what you were taught from the beginning, go back to what you've heard, go back to what I taught you. He's just constantly reminding them to go back to what they have. He's not expecting some new teachings to come up in the church. He expects his people to live by the established authoritative teachings of Jesus and his disciples, his apostles. That's what we have in our Bible. And if we do that, then we can trust that the genuine anointing of the Holy Spirit will illuminate the truth in our lives and we will become, as Paul said, complete and equipped for every good work. So don't allow people who claim to have special secret knowledge of God get in between you and your Bibles, all right? And now we come to the last section, the encouragement section, not the test section, where we see that real faith will actually assure you of your relationship with God. And it's a really nice way to finish this section. Let's look at verse 28. It's a really good encouragement. And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. So John says we need to abide in Christ. So that means stick with Jesus and what you've been taught about Him from the beginning. And if you do that, then on the day that you stand before Jesus, you can have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame. If those who followed after these new teachings have departed and shown that they were never really gods, then those who continue are going to show the opposite. When Jesus appears on the day of judgment... Those ones will be able to stand before Him with confidence, assured of the genuineness of their faith. Those who stick with Christ will be able to face Him without shame because they have remained faithful to Him and His Word. And once again, John reminds us, as he's done many times in the letter, and if you read the rest of it, he's going to do it lots of times again. Verse 29, the same reminder. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Obedience is important for the Christian. If we know that God is righteous, and if we're a Christian, we should know that, then we will actually be able to see who really is born of Him by their actions. The actions of those whose faith is fake shows they're not really born of Him. That's why they're not true Christians. They're not practicing righteousness. Their fake faith has been revealed by their departure, their denial, and the deceit about who Christ is. So let me ask you the question as we come to an end that I asked you at the start. What does your faith reveal about you? Will your faith one day lead you to depart? Or is yours a faith that will endure? The only way that it can be a faith that will endure is if it's anchored to the unchanging Word of God? Is yours a faith that will deny essential truths about who Jesus is? Or does your faith uphold the truth about Jesus as Christ, as Lord and Messiah, as God? The only way it can is if it is anchored to the unchanging Word of God. Is yours a faith that can withstand the deceitful winds of new and exciting teachings that frequently blow through the church? 
You should know where I'm going with this now. The only way it can is if it's anchored to the unchanging Word of God. And is your faith a faith that can give you a real assurance that you truly are saved? That's only a faith that can be found in the unchanging Word of God. Now, I joked about this with Rob's kids, and they thought I was kidding, but they're not. I'm giving you homework. I told you I'm a teacher. Teachers like to give out homework, and I want you to have something to do. We've talked kind of a lot of big ideas today, but what does that mean for how you should actually walk out of here and live? So I want to give you something very specific to do. It's going to be three steps. For those of you that like to take photos, you can wait until step three. You get the whole thing in one shot, all right? Here's what I want you to do. In this section, John tells us about how important it is for us to remain in Christ. I want to read verses 24 and 28 again because he says it most strongly in those verses. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And then verse 28, And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame and His coming. And he tells us how to do that. He says, what we have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. So our remaining in God is based on God's Word remaining in us. And His Word is our anchor that prevents us from departing, that keeps us from denying who Jesus is and protects us from being deceived. So what I want you to do over this coming week is a bit of a checklist about how God's Word is remaining in you. All right, here's step one. I want you to make a list of all the things the Scripture teaches you about Jesus that you find difficult to accept. All the tricky bits that you read and go, oh, I don't know about that, all right? Make a list of all those hard parts. Maybe what you find difficult is His claims to be true God and eternal God. Maybe you've got a background in, say, the Jehovah's Witness Church or the Mormon Church and the idea that Jesus was created, not eternal, maybe that's where you get stuck. Maybe you find it hard to accept that He was actually perfect and He lived a sinless life in complete obedience to the Father. Maybe you find it hard to accept His demands that you obey Him, that you walk in His footsteps. Maybe the struggle for you is that, hang on a minute, if I do that, that might lead me into a life of difficulty, a life of suffering for Christ rather than a life that's easy and full of, say, wealth and other kinds of things that our world says. Maybe what you like, and you like this because Christmas, it's little baby Jesus, meek and mild in the cradle, but the pictures in the book of Revelation of warrior Jesus returning at the head of heaven's armies to wage war against God's enemies, oh no, I don't, I don't like that Jesus. I just like the cute little baby Jesus, not the fierce warrior Jesus. Maybe that's where you're getting stuck. For me, one of the most difficult things where, where I struggle is the exclusivity of Christ. The, the thinking about that Christ is the only way to heaven and then thinking about my family and friends who have died without knowing Christ and that are now facing eternity in hell, that troubles me and that troubles my sense of fairness and justice. So I don't know what it'll be for you, but I think all of us will struggle at some point to accept something about what the Bible says about who Jesus is. So find out what that is, write it down. That's step one. Here's step two. You need to go and find all of the relevant parts of the New Testament that talk about that idea. And you need to put them all in one place, just a list of verses that are all about that same one idea. Now, you can add in Old Testament verses if you want, but start with the New Testament. That'll be the easiest way to go. If you don't know how to do that, if you're not sure how to find these verses, come and have a chat to me. I'll be around after the service. Chat to Pastor Rob, chat to Dan, um, one of the other elders. They will be able to help you find the relevant Bible passages that are about the issue that you're struggling with. So find them, put them in one place. And here's the third thing to do. And if you don't do step three, don't bother doing steps one and two because it's not going to make any difference in your life. Okay, you've got to do step three. You need to prayerfully read these passages. You need to spend time asking the Holy Spirit, who is our anointing, to illuminate these passages to you, to help you understand them, to accept what they say about who Jesus is. We are not going to be able to remain in Christ if Christ is not remaining in us. And we find Christ in the pages of the Scripture. A lot of us will know somebody who has refused to accept something about Jesus. And that's kind of opened a door in their life, a wedge in their faith, that as time went on, got wider and wider and wider and eventually drove them completely away from God. 
One of the biggest reasons people leave the church is because they've started denying something about what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is. Or they've become deceived by other voices in the world around them. Or maybe it's the rebellion in their own heart that gets in the way. Either way, wherever your struggle is, take it to God. He can handle it. If you read the Psalms, David's wrestling with God all the time. But where does he end? He ends with, but I will trust in you. Take your struggles to God. Say to him, God, I don't understand this thing about Jesus. I don't understand how my dear old Nan could not be in heaven. She was such a wonderful person. And Whatever the issue might be, take it to God. Read those parts of his scriptures. Ask him to help you understand and accept what he teaches about who he is. If you submit these struggles to God and to the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which as Christians we have, ask the Holy Spirit to shape you, to change you. So that as John says, what was from the beginning, the established word of God, that 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 abides in you so that you can abide in him. Join with me in prayer as we close. Father God, we thank you for this passage, lengthy though it was. We thank you for what John has to teach us, for the warnings that he gives us, for how we can see that this is not just a problem that was faced in the early church, that we face similar issues of those who come in and lie about who Christ is. They deceive us and they try to lead us astray. And I thank you that what John has done here is to remind us of the importance of sticking with your word, of going with what you've given us, the established truth and teachings about who you are. And I pray for everyone here who is struggling with some aspect of that revelation, that as they do this homework task this week, that your Holy Spirit would meet them where they are, would help them to begin to see, to understand, to accept who Jesus is and what Jesus says about himself in the word so that they might have real fellowship with the real Jesus, not a fake, not a counterfeit, the true Jesus, and through that, have an eternal relationship with you. Father, help us this week to do that. Help us to be people who help each other, so that when we bring our struggles to one another, we don't feel like we're judged for doubting or for not asking the right kinds of questions or for asking the wrong kinds of questions. Help us to be a group that supports each other, that wants to see each other grow closer in their love for you. Guide us in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.